I want to invite you to go to 2 Thessalonians as we continue our movement through this book. And we've spent really the past four weeks on like heavy-duty big thoughts, big ideas about the end of all things. And today we're hopefully going to return to some things that they really are, are, are uh, anchoring for us. And that's going to be kind of a theme uh, throughout today. This idea of anchoring ourselves in what we know, the truth, um, the, the fact of the gospel coming to us and God saving us. These, these things on which all of our, our faith is, is built. And so while we have investigated those big ideas, Paul is helping us at the end of that to come back to this, to anchor us back in what we know. Now, the section we're at today is verses 13 through 15, and this really begins a, a brief transitional section, 13 to 17, a transitional section that breaks up the two major portions of the letter, or we may say the two major topics of the letter. These statements distinguish the Thessalonian believers from those who were just mentioned, as we concluded in verse 12, those who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So Paul is helping them to understand, these believers to understand, you are not these people. He's reminding them of the salvation that they have and the glory for which they are destined. He's trying to solidify and reinforce their commitment to Christ amid the persecution and affliction that they're enduring. So let's read these few verses, chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. He says, But we are always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through the gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Let's pray. Father, we once again confess our need for the Spirit's help in understanding and applying the Word. And Father, as we've investigated big truths about the end, we're, we're thankful for these, these big truths that are ours because of what Jesus has done. So help us to enjoy them, to remember them well, and to not stray from these truths. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If we want to give a title for today, we may say uh, regroup and rally, regroup and rally. Uh, the theme this morning, the theme this morning is a, a bit long. I, I couldn't figure out a way to shrink it down, but the theme is the weight of future events leads God's people to regroup and rally around a fresh reminder of God's saving work. Those future events cause us to regroup and rally around a fresh reminder of God's saving work, anchoring us, if you will. I think that this is easily applicable to 
our situation now. While we don't face the same kinds of things as the church in Thessalonica, we understand that when difficult seasons come, we don't let those things shake us, as we've been talking about in the series, unshaken. We don't let those things shake us. What we do is we have to take that step back, remember what is going on in reality, don't get caught up in the circumstantial stuff, but remember the big truths, and that's what he does right here. We're regrouping. Most often, regrouping amounts to anchoring ourselves in the things that do not change. If you watch sports any, anywhere as much as I do, like you know when, when a team faces a terrible loss, they go back to the drawing board and they look at the film and they remember the things that they can do well, and they do those. They regroup, and they rally around who they are and what they are. And so Paul, in these verses right here, he provides for us, as we regroup, a few anchors, but he does this through a statement of thanksgiving, as you saw there in verse 13, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you. The first line of verse 13, it ought to be familiar to you. If you want to look back, chapter 1, look back in your Bible, chapter 1, verse 3, you'll see almost the exact same wording is here. Chapter 1 of verse 8, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. Now, it is the exact, exact wording in uh, my English translation, but in the Greek, there's, there's always ought is, is swapped in this verse, in chapter 2 and verse 13. So he's really... He's echoing what he, what he said there in chapter 1 and verse 3. He's following up on what he said he would do, right? We're always going to give thanks for you. And then in chapter 2, he says it again. I'm always going to give thanks for you. We're always going to thank God for you. And he notes in both occasions that this Thanksgiving is an obligation. God deserves all the credit for what has happened in this Thessalonian church. And God deserves all the credit for what happens in Cedar View Baptist Church, what happens in your lives. He deserves all the credit. Now, formerly, the first time, he gave thanks for all the Christian virtue that was developing in these believers. You remember, their, their faith and their love, and, and, and he gives that indication of hope Faith, hope, and love, all these virtues are developing now. As, as Marshall notes here, the stress lies more on what God is doing in their lives and on this fact, Paul would build their assurance. So you guys probably know something about the things that have taken you off in your life. They've, they've caused you to be shaken. They got you imbalanced in your life and what you need what you need is that reminder of the assurance that comes from the gospel of the Lord Jesus. That's what he does. He calls these people, brothers beloved by the Lord. Brothers beloved by the Lord. Frame argues here that the statement of love is intended to encourage these faint-hearted saints in Thessalonica. And how is that? How is that? simply to say, brothers beloved by the Lord. See, we've just gotten basically two chapters 
of a glimpse into the authoritative judgment of the Lord Jesus when he, as it says, deals out retribution to those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel, when he, in chapter 2, kills the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth, when he sends a delusion and condemns all those who refuse to believe the truth, he says that Jesus, with all that judgment power, he loves you. He loves you. And I think about what is to come, and and I hope you think about these things as well. What is to come, and the only thought I have is, I'm so glad I'm on his side. I'm so glad he saved me. That this is not my future. But that now, right now, and then, he loves me. All that wrath is not for me, and it's not for those who believe, because you are believers. You are the beloved of the Lord. So on this statement of thanksgiving, he provides really three anchors. And it's simple. I hope you'll be able to follow with the words here. I'm just getting the words from the verses, really. Three anchors. This first anchor from verse 13, God chose you. Verse 13, God chose you. So we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So God chose you. God's choice in the matter brings up some big theological concepts. It brings some some of these concepts right into this reminder of salvation. And, and I think it's a helpful reminder, as Best says right here, he says, the engineering of man's salvation lies in God's hands. It begins and ends with God. And so when we come to the matter of God's choice in saving the doctrine of election, uh, election is a doctrine that's, that's well known to be very Pauline. He talks about it frequently. Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. 2 Timothy 1.9 teaches that he gave us grace for salvation in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And even in 1 Thessalonians 1.4, he says, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. And so here he adds, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Now, uh, you, you may have a, a, a translation that, that has a reading that's a little different. It, it, some manuscripts actually read, God chose you from the beginning. And, and that may be a better reading. I don't know. I tend to lean on this first fruits idea. And I'll tell you why. God chose you from the beginning would only refer to the divine election of these believers in eternity past. And so I tend to think that Paul's attention to the circumstantial details surrounding these saints in Thessalonica, like like their uniquely difficult encounter with persecution, the, the heartfelt relationship that he communicated so clearly in 1 Thessalonians, 
All of this indicates to me that he is conscious and, and talking specifically about them. And so I think first fruits is a, a better reading. I lean that way. That God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. And so I think what he's communicating here is that he's reminding them that they are the start of something special in their little corner of the world. Like, hey, you're the first ones to believe here. You're the first ones to experience this salvation. And God chose you, yes, in eternity past. But right here and now, you're the first ones. You're the first ones making Christ's kingdom visible. So first fruits acknowledges both God's election, but also its manifestation in real time in Thessalonica. You're the first of a new breed in this area, I think is what Paul is saying. You know, uh, uh, those of you with kids, if you have more than one kid, more than one child, you know that... uh, there's almost an inherent, like as a parent, there's almost an inherent apology that comes along with, with parenting that first child, right? It's like, hey, look, we're doing the best we can, but I'm just going to go ahead and say, like, I'm sorry. We're all just trying very hard, but I've never done this before. You're the first to experience it, so let's help each other out as best we can. You understand what I'm talking about? That apology. Like, this is new to me. Salvation here, as he discusses it among the Thessalonians, is just that. Like, hey, I know it's tough. The persecution has come. The afflictions have come. But you got to realize what you are beginning among these people in Thessalonica. Remember that you're the start of something very special. The first fruits to be saved. And then he says, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now, as I just described it, you're thinking largely in terms, or you're already thinking largely in terms of the conversion of these people. But as Paul is known to do, he, he stretches I don't even know if stretches is the right way. He uses salvation in such a broad sense. So God saved them, but their salvation is not just a point in time when they repented and believed, but it's actually, it, it includes their sanctification. And it includes their ongoing faith. And that's what he notes here. Salvation includes both spirit-empowered sanctification and truth-bound faith. So first off, spirit-empowered sanctification. Like I said, we tend to believe or we tend to view salvation as that one event that sort of gets your Christian life started. But for Paul, it's much broader. He views salvation as the whole act of God from election all the way through to glorification. You're going to get glory is what he says in these verses. So salvation, if we understand it in that way, it's all-encompassing so that the call, when the gospel call comes to us, regeneration of the Holy Spirit, justification in the sight of God, and then sanctification, all of this is included. 
in that big picture of salvation. And it ought to give you comfort because God's salvation is not just a work that gets you started, but God's salvation is a work that brings it to completion. I know some of you probably are those kind of folks that you, you see that, that piece of furniture on the side of the road or you see it in a, a yard sale and you look at that piece of furniture and you're like, I want that piece of furniture. But when you, when you take it home and you work on it and you, know, you, you make it what you want it to be where it works for your space or you make it look more antique or you, you know, uh, scuff up things on it so it looks nice and, and used... You know, how y'all do things. Things I don't understand. When you bought that piece of furniture, when you picked up that piece of furniture on the side of the road, which probably was considered junk, you didn't pick it up for what it was only. You picked it up for what it would be and what it could be. And so God's election of the saints is not just for that day that you repented and believed. It's for all the days to follow, too. The days when you are shaped after the image of Christ. And because of this sanctifying activity of the Spirit that is ongoing, because He includes that in salvation, His view of salvation, it ought to cause us pause. Because there is much danger for those that claim to be saved but show no evidence of sanctification. Their idea of assurance is only what happened on that day when God looks to the evidence of what happened on that day. The Spirit will most assuredly bring about change in a true believer. But as we see here, the Spirit's work is paired with faith rightly placed in Jesus. So he continues, sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So secondly, truth-bound faith. Truth-bound faith. You get my idea here? Maybe it's the idea of anchor. He contrasts from those who believe the lie, those who reject the truth. Believers, believers have faith rightly placed in the Lord Jesus in his saving work. So again, as he talked about salvation, including that measure of sanctification that happens throughout our lives, also here, he's not talking about the faith that you believed on that day when you repented. This is the faith that continues for a lifetime. It's the life of faith. It's walking by faith. And we know the scriptures, the righteous shall live by faith. You recall the, the words of Jesus speaking of the coming end of all things, Matthew 24, he said, the one who endures to the end will be saved. So there is a perseverance that is bound up in true faith. So saints, God saved you so that you would persevere. God saved you so that you would continue So you would press on believing, no matter the circumstances, that he has everything worked out perfectly. He promises, even, 
that the work he starts in us will be completed. Philippians 1.6. Those whom he called, he will also glorify. Romans 8.30. So if you have that effectual call of God on your life, you believe the gospel, the guarantee, the guarantee, 100 out of 100 times, God glorifies that person. And he does that work, really, through the working out of faith. So we see the first anchor here. God chose you, verse 13. The Antichrist is coming. All hell will break loose. But hey, saints, remember that God chose you. Anchor yourself in that. Secondly, second anchor, God called you. And you start to see how it's working out. You start to see how God's salvation was, was brought into your life. He called you, verse 14. To this he called you through the gospel, to, through our gospel, excuse me, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. His call, I believe, has two parts here. First is the means. The means, he says, this is our gospel. And it may seem odd that Paul, speaking also for, for Sylvanus and Timothy, would refer to the gospel as our gospel. And don't get mixed up. That's not a possessive in the sense that they own the gospel or, or that it's, it's solely theirs and they have to distribute it. No, it's possessive in the sense that there are other so-called gospels floating around that are no gospel at all. Paul's distinguishing the message that he preached from the messages that seek to subvert the true gospel and distract from the true gospel or uh, contradict the true gospel. Our gospel is a, re a reference to the authentic fruit-bearing ministry of Paul and his companions. So previously, we, we covered the big picture of salvation, all this from election all the way to glorification. Now, he's narrowing it down. He's narrowing it down to that occasion of the gospel preached. Do you see what's happening? Like this, this beautiful doctrine of, of, of salvation has now come to these people at that moment when they heard the gospel and believed. And he's reminding them of this occasion, this means by which God called them. You know, on a, on a side note for application right here, maybe it would do us well to think about the fact that you want people around you to be saved. You want them to come to the knowledge of the truth. And somehow we think that that's going to happen without our speaking the gospel. Like, our prayer shouldn't just be, hey, God, send somebody to preach the gospel to them. Uh, get the preacher to go over there, God, and, and, and say what he needs to say so that they can be saved. No, no, that is your job. No, you're not an apostle. Maybe you're not a, a pastor. Maybe you're not a deacon or, or leader or, or whatever. You still have the responsibility of speaking that gospel so the gospel can do its work in saving souls. God always saves through the preaching of the gospel. And we know it from God's word, foolishness 
Foolishness. Fools like me get to go out and share the gospel and God saves people. We get to preach the gospel. He's narrowing it here to that occasion of preaching the gospel when the call of God fell upon these people. And maybe you recall that call of God falling upon you when you were saved. When you came to the knowledge of the truth, when you came to that moment where you said, I'm surrendering everything to Jesus. For you, believer, when did that call come? When did someone tell you the story of Jesus? When did the Holy Spirit break in and regenerate your soul? I want to encourage you, as we read his words here, let the attitude and intention of worship well up within you as you think about that day, that season where you repented and believe the gospel. God chose you, and in real time, through the gospel message spoken in English words for many of you, I'm sure all of you, God called you. He called you unto himself. So there's a means. God called you. The means is through the gospel, our Gospel, but there's an end also that he mentions. So that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The end is sure glory. Sure glory. So your conversion, if you are truly converted, came with a guarantee. So when God's effectual call on your life when his choice was made manifest and the gospel came in your life in a saving way upon your ears and your, your mind and your heart and your soul, your participation in the glory that is to be revealed was engraved in God's redemption story. This ought to cause you to have great confidence, saints. When that gospel fell upon you on that day, it was sure as done. You will be a participant in the glory of Jesus when all things come to an end. His glory will be your glory. Remember what verses 10 and 12 in chapter 1 taught us. Look back. Chapter 1, verse 10. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who, who have believed. And then verse 12. So that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The glory that belongs to God alone will be shared with all the saints will be in that day a full reflection of his glory, multiplied glory through the wondrous story of redemption. The means, our gospel. The end, sure glory. God called you. God chose you. God called you. Second anchor, third anchor, final anchor. God commands you. God commands you. Verse 15, 
So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So all these big thoughts have a very practical purpose behind them. God intends that all of his saving activity come to bear in our everyday responsibilities. So he gives these two commands. First off, stand firm. God commands you, stand firm. Uh, in, in high school, I did some wrestling. And one thing that they teach you in wrestling, and those of you who have, maybe you don't want to admit it, but you, you've been in a fight. You understand the point here. In wrestling, they teach you, you want to have a low center of gravity and you want to have your feet firmly planted on the ground so that you won't be moved around, thrown around by your opponent. They want you to get low so you can control them as much as possible. If you have that, that staggered stance and that low center of gravity, it's very hard to move somebody with that. I remember as a kid, my dad used to say, I'm going to stand here and you do everything you can to move me from where I'm standing. And I couldn't do it. Of course, as I got bigger, he quit asking me to do that. I might could beat up, beat up my dad these days. We'll see. We'll see. Maybe, maybe we'll, we'll start wrestling again. <laughs> my sister has got that mental image at this point. If you're off balance, it's going to mean points for the opponent. This command, stand firm, it looks back to that call that we received these past couple of weeks to remain unshaken. Stand firm. Remain unshaken. So our opponents, whether physical or mental or spiritual, whatever their attack is, they will seek to knock us down, trip us up. They will seek to shake us from our foundation. And they will succeed if we are not standing firm in Christ standing firm upon his gospel. How do you stand firm, saints? God chose you and he called you. What else do you need? Stand firm in this gospel truth. But we have some, maybe many among us who've been shaken by various circumstances. So how will we Church, become to them, become to one another the support that they need. How may we strengthen their resolve to stand firm on Christ, on his gospel? And hopefully you start to see the illustration, the image of wrestling starts to break down. Because... Contrary to wrestling, the Christian life is a communal life by God's design in which it's not you standing alone on a foundation hoping you can remain firm. But it's you on the foundation intertwined and interlocked through mutual love and service in the body of Christ. You, believer, are not called to stand firm all by yourself, but we, church, are commanded to stand firm. 
And so when your legs won't hold you up, you got all these people holding you up, causing you to stand firm. You know what that looks like in the very least? It's reminding each other of these verses. Hey, remember, God chose you for this. Remember that God called you for this. And he is not reversing any of that. This is yours. So stand firm, brother. Stand firm, sister. Because God is doing his work in you and it will not fail. Stand firm, he commands. And then secondly, and connected. I hope you see the connection. I'll say hold tight. Hold tight. Hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Hold tight. Now, he mentions traditions here. Traditions, he says, that we taught you. And he also explains that this may have come through uh, teaching or it may come through these letters sent by Paul over against, he's, he's saying, letters that truly came from us because you remember just in the previous section, hey, there's people pretending to be us. They're writing letters saying that it's from us, claiming apostolic authority. But you embrace what we have told you and what we have told you alone. The word traditions ought not scare you. This is simply a very Jewish way of saying all the truths that necessarily unfold from the gospel. All these truths must be maintained. Christian doctrine is not a fluid or malleable matter. Okay? So if we have embraced the gospel, there are a set of essential truths that are unchanging. And so to change those doctrines or to, to believe something different than those essential doctrines is to abandon Christianity. And maybe you, like me, you know of many who have let go of those traditions handed down. That faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Maybe you know of those people who have let go. Somewhere along the way, they began to believe that Christian doctrine was an encumbrance. And it held them back. That I can't be who I was intended to be because of these Christian Truths or Christian doctrines, Christian teaching. But it's holding me back. And so they let go. And now, if you look at their lives, they have the inability to discern their way through life. They're easily swayed by the doctrines of man, even the doctrines of the enemy. And so concerning them... Let's plead with the Lord for their return. Let's remind them, hey, you once believed that you were chosen by God, that his call was upon you. What happened? How can we come back to this truth? So let's plead with the Lord for their return while we seek them, but let's do it while we maintain our hold on sound doctrine on the true gospel of Jesus Christ. 
You know, it's interesting, as one commentator said, this is a really heavy doctrinal statement in these verses. But there's one thing that's actually missing from these verses. An explicit gospel. Now, Paul has been clear about the gospel message in his writing to the Thessalonian believers, but we ought to be reminded of these truths, of the truth of the gospel. That that message of God's election, the big salvation that was made manifest to us when the gospel was preached, we heard on that occasion about the Lord Jesus being perfect in his body, rendering all his service unto God perfectly without sin, living the life that we can't live, doing all the things that we fail to do, not doing all the things that everything in us wants to do. He was perfect in every way. And he went to the cross in order to take the wrath of God upon himself. He took the punishment we deserve in order to save us and give us his perfection, his righteousness. This gospel, this beautiful message of redemption can be ours, as the Bible says, through repentance and faith. And so I spoke of that occasion when you received the gospel, but for some of you, you didn't have that occasion. There was not a point in time where you said, I'm, I'm surrendering everything to Jesus. I belong to him. I'm declaring that. If that's not been your experience, then today I would invite you to repent and believe. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ let your Christian life truly start today. Maybe for you, believer, today is the day to do a bit of regrouping. Maybe you've been tossed around by circumstances. Maybe the enemy has got you off balance. Maybe you're not reaching out to those brothers and sisters that can help you stand firm. How can you respond today in a way that anchors you to that big salvation? That beautiful salvation, that sure salvation. Let's respond as the Holy Spirit leads. Kyle will be available to counsel with you. Let's pray together.